Fran, welcome to the first ever episode of The Atmosphere is Electric. How are you, buddy? Yeah, I'm really well, which how are you? Yeah, pretty good, pretty good. Now, we're going to, uh, well, hopefully for the next sort of 50, 60 minutes, so we're going to be talking all things football and hopefully uh, get into the nub of some of this really interesting stuff that's been happening. Uh, obviously, it's been a little bit of a while since there's been a, a Premier League fixture. How did you cope with FA Cup weekend? There's some interesting games, wasn't there? Um, so it's always, I think it's quite nice to have a little break from the Premier League. You end up getting just wrapped up in one one league, don't you? So yeah, nice break having watching some FA Cup games and watching some lower league teams put it up to the big boys. Well, yeah, the teams left in the FA Cup, uh, it feels like there's a real opening for someone that's not normally there, doesn't it? With Liverpool, Chelsea, Arsenal uh, and some of those other big clubs being out. You know, if you can avoid... The Manchester teams, you've, it feels like there's an actually a pathway to a final here. Yeah, I think, like you said, there's a few teams in there that if they get another couple of good draws, they're dreaming of Wembley. And there's some some, some small teams or perceptionally small teams that are making some really great money out of the FA which is great to see, isn't it? You know, you look at the Wrexham story as an example. I know they have the, obviously the Hollywood owners, but you know, to see a non-league team be that close to a home fixture against Spurs. Uh, would have been something to see, wouldn't it? Yeah, you can tell how gutted they were conceding in the last second, wasn't it? But that's what they have to about. <laughs> and if they knew they were having a Premier League team come to the stadium, luckily that was done before the draw. If they'd have known what would, what the prize was, they would have been even more gutted at the time, right? Yeah, but it's, it's good exposure for them, isn't it? Like you said, they've got the two owners there. I think they're on Netflix. So it's, it's going to do their documentary, The World of the that cup run. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They, they, they definitely have uh, raised the profile of Wrexham. That is a understatement. So, obviously, uh, the last game week in the Premier League feels like a lifetime ago, and there was some some big fixtures: Liverpool, Chelsea, obviously Arsenal, Man United. Uh, there was a London derby on the Monday night with Fulham versus Spurs. What what was your key sort of takeaway, Fran, in terms of the last game week from a from a Premier League point of view? Um. Yeah, I mean, the, the games that you mentioned were obviously quite quite big games with a lot of the, the top teams in there. I think one of the main things that I took away from the game week was there was a lot of relegation battle games in that game week as well. And it actually exposed a few of the sides of who actually could come out of relegation and who are in a real dogfight. As an example, Everton um, losing 2-0 to West Ham. Both of them were really struggling, um, but West Ham picked up the points. So I think that game week exposed a few of the sides that are really going to be in for a tough ride. Um, but off from the top end of the table, Arsenal beating Man U was a huge result. They needed to to win that game to show the world that they are challenging for the Premier League and they're a proper team and they're not just there because they've had a few lucky results. They're there on merit and I think that result was a statement result. Yeah, uh, it absolutely was. Yeah, uh, let, let's let's go back a bit. Let, let's let's talk about that relegation dogfight because I think actually uh, I don't know why it's always called a dogfight. By the way, well, but anyway, that's maybe that's for another <laughs> podcast. <laughs> maybe that would have been a good name for a podcast. Uh, but I, I think it's interesting for me because obviously you know we're going to come on to it later with the with the with the transfer window. Uh, there's a lot of teams in and around that spot, isn't it? There's a lot of teams that could get dragged in very quickly if they're not careful. Yeah, I think when you look at the the league standings as they are, I think there's three points from 20th to about 14th. So, like you said, one or two results, you could end up being bottom of the table very quickly. Um, there's a few sides that have, have won a couple of games, like Bournemouth recently, and they've shot themselves up the table. Same with Forest as well. Forest were bottom and have won two games and all of a sudden are in 14th. So, it's really tight. Like you said, the transfer window could make the difference for a few of those teams. And... Obviously, you know, you look at the form table, even sort of you look at, you know, Southampton, Everton, Bournemouth, 
between the three teams in the last six weeks, they've only, there's only been one win out of all of those fixtures. So that means that there's a lot of defeats going in there. And, and actually, you look at Wolves, who actually, under their new manager, look like they've turned the corner and are now sitting above the line. You know, who, who right now do you think is, is in the biggest bother? Who do you think right now is a team that really should be start preparing for, for, for life in the Championship? I think the main one to highlight, and it's obvious for everyone, is Everton. Uh, just that Frank Lampard. They've got a new manager in, which I think, like we've spoke before, you couldn't get a better fit for Everton at the minute, could you, Sean Dyke? Yeah. What an amazing appointment. He's the exact person they need in this in the relegation battle. But they didn't have any January signings. So, Everton are in a real fight. They've got to play with the squad that they've got. Um, and they've obviously got to try and get the fans back on board. So, they're the fans are obviously up against their owners at the minute. So, yeah, I think they're the one to highlight. But there's a, there's a lot of teams, like we've mentioned before, in, in and around there. Um, you know, Leeds are on a bad run. Leicester are on a terrible run. Forest have just picked up. Bournemouth not on a great run. Southampton not winning games. So, when you look at the form, there's a lot in, in terrible form, which, like you said, one or two wins, though, it can change that. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, we're going to, we're going to touch on everything in a little bit more detail later when we, when we talk about this week's fixtures as being one of the key games uh, the team for me that, that I think is probably flying a little bit under the radar, uh, didn't have a great window, looks safe, but could easily get dragged in. They haven't won any of their last four fixtures with two defeats and two draws. Is Crystal Palace. I think really that that was a team that for me should have been should have been going all out for that kind of centre forward. That, that you know, they, they, they always look quite robust. They look quite uh, defensively sound, but they haven't really got, you know, if Saha's not scoring, where are their goals coming from? Yeah, Palace aren't playing very well at the minute. But what I think they do have is they do have quite a lot of cover of good young players in a few areas. Yeah. So they, you've got Elise, yeah. uh, you've got Eze who's playing there as well. They've got a couple of forwards there. So even though they are in a bit of bad form, I think they've just got enough firepower. And also they've got pretty st- steady defence as well. I think they've got enough to, to not be dragged into that relegation battle. I do see that there's three worst teams in the league. And I said, I think that could come from the bottom current bottom six. I must admit, the, the Crystal Palace home fans have got to be worth a few points. I mean, they've got phenomenal home support. They are absolutely, uh, absolutely fantastic week in, week out, aren't they? Yeah, it's a tough place to go, Palace. I said, the home support there are definitely worth a few points. I think it will be that at the end of the year. It will be a few points in it. I don't think there's going to be a clear team bottom. I think it's going to be four, five, six teams in there. I really can't see one team just hold propping up the league like it has been in the past few well, it's already not proven that, that not to be the case, isn't it? In the sense that there's only two points between the bottom four, three points between the bottom six, seven. Uh, you know, it's absolutely definitely going to be tight. And I can't see any of them really getting too far sort of away either way in terms of too far out of it or too far into it because, you know, they've obviously all got to play each other again. You know, there's going to be lots of the old school six-pointers, the old-fashioned six-pointer, whatever that means. Yeah, and I think that's what the main reason for highlighting West Ham and Everton. Both of them were down there, rock bottom in the league. And that's a huge win for West Ham against Everton. It's, saying it, it's taken them up a few places and made sure that Everton are staying in that, that bottom three at the minute. And, and whilst we're talking about last game week, obviously, you know, historically, one of the biggest fixtures on there would have been, is still, Liverpool-Chelsea. Uh, obviously, the early kickoff, which you can never really predict. As I say, don't, don't bet on the early kickoff. Uh, a nil-nil probably was if you were going to put a bet on probably would have been a bet and, and, and they're currently saying ninth and tenth in the Premier League I mean how how crazy is that and is that going a little bit under the, I mean, are people talking about that enough or is it just 
maybe we've got so much other stuff going with Arsenal being top and the, 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 down the bottom that they're almost getting a bit of a free hit this season, aren't they? I think I think you're right. They are getting a bit of a free hit. Nobody isn't really talking about how, how bad they've been. Um, I think there is is a few points you can make against both the teams. So Chelsea, for example, have had horrendous injuries. Um, they've got a new manager in who's settling in. They have we've come onto the transfer window. They've made a lot of signings. So I can see them in the next few weeks flying. You know, a couple of results being strung together and all of a sudden they're back in the picture for the top four. Um, Liverpool, on the other hand, again, we'll come back to it on the transfer window, haven't made that many signings. I think they're the one who are getting a bit of a free ride. Klopp is, for me, he's, he's got to be careful of his job. He's, they've, they've been on a terrible run and they have spent some money as well. Um, so, yeah, I think Liverpool are getting it off too much of a free ride, really. I mean, if you just said to me, you know, in August when the Premier League kicked off that after, you know, 20 games, I know they've not all played 20 games, but Fulham have played 21 and Liverpool played 19, so we average out 20 games, that Liverpool will be sat beneath Brentford, Fulham, Brighton, Newcastle, Spurs and Arsenal. And to be fair, Manchester United, I wouldn't have believed you. I mean, that's, that's absolutely crazy that there's a, a, that many teams above them, but be the type of team that's above them. I mean, that must be must be quite hard as a Liverpool fan to be going through because they're used to Liverpool being, you know, there or thereabouts in everything. You know, Liverpool challenge for all four trophies normally. That's I think that's the point to make about Liverpool is going from, like you said, challenging for all four trophies and being one of, if not the best team in, in the league, in the country for the past few seasons to all of a sudden, they look clueless. Like They've got no legs in midfield. They don't look like they've actually got a plan of how they play. Uh, he's he's got to be under serious pressure there because at least you can see the direction with what they're trying to do with Chelsea. That you know they're bringing in those younger types of players. What are Liverpool doing? What, what are they, What is their transfer policy? And I think that's why there needs to be definitely a bit more of a spotlight shone on those two teams, but especially Liverpool. Yeah, I think you can definitely see that Chelsea with with Graham Potter and the director of football coming in and the signings that they've made, even though. From the outside, some of them may look slightly scattergun in their approach. What, what you can't argue is the players they're signing are some of the most uh, interesting up-and-coming talents in their position. You know, you look at even uh, last night at the, at the closing of the transfer window, you know, dropping £105 million on what is or what could be one of the best sort of central midfield players, which was a glaring gap in their squad, is that they're, they're being backed and they're, and they're giving it a real go. Yeah, definitely. And no, we all understand that Liverpool are up for sale. So they're not going to be spending lots and lots of money on the team. But at the same time, it makes them a less attractive proposition to buy. So by not purchasing anyone, with the exception of Gappo, that midfield looks so bare. Like you said, you mentioned a few teams that are above them in Fulham. I watched the Fulham game the other day and they're running through teams, Fulham. Oh. And if you're Liverpool fans, that's not acceptable. Like You can't be having so-called lesser sides running through your midfield the way that they have been doing. So, and it, it also comes back to the point about Mane, doesn't it? Is is he a bigger miss than what they originally thought? Have they let the wrong person go? Should it have been Salah? Well, uh, they definitely shouldn't have let Mane go and arguably they should have let neither of them go because maybe the sum of the two parts put together was greater than them individually. I, it takes me back uh, to some of those great partnerships and pairings in the past and, and when they worked together... And you separate one of them, you think about Shearer and Sutton. Now, Shearer obviously went on to, to, to carry on to be a phenomenal centre-forward, but you could argue that Chris Sutton was never quite the same centre-forward as he was after that pairing with the old SAS Shearer. And, and, and maybe, you know, Mane 
albeit went to a big club in Germany, picked up an injury. So therefore, you know, he was doing okay before the injury, but he wasn't doing the numbers that he was doing in the Premier League, you know, because sometimes you need you need that Batman and Robin, right? You need that partner over there that keeps two or three defenders busy because we can't switch off because that's Sadio Mane, which gives Salah more space. And now people are doubling up on Salah, possibly, which means that actually he's not getting a return either. Yeah, and, and I think at the beginning of the, the season, when you looked at their squad, Liverpool, everyone thought they were going to have a good season. You know, you got Jota, Luis Diaz, They've got all and now Gakpo. They do have the firepower there, but like you said, is it just that partnership of Mane and Salah, but knowing where each other are running, that understanding, and it's not quite there with them. But yeah, they've really struggled. I think the one thing to highlight with them is because they have been so good over the years, their defensive frailties, which are showing now, have probably been masked. We we all know Trent's not the best defender, but now they're having to defend a lot. It's exposing them even more. And I think to an extent as well, Van Dijk, Van Dijk's, doesn't look a shadow of the player that he has done. So, and, and is that because he's having to defend more? Is he yeah. exposing it as some of his weaknesses? Now, a couple of years ago, you wouldn't have said that he had a weakness, but it's being exposed this season. Yeah, look, I, th- I think that's a really interesting point. And certainly, even when we come onto the transfer window, that there was lots of teams or lots of supporters of teams sort of crying out for, you know, uh, maybe a new centre-back as an example, because we've got a poor defensive record. Actually, Liverpool defended from the front. Liverpool pressed high. You know, he used to call it heavy metal football, right? You know, you couldn't break the press. You couldn't get past the front three. So the defenders were at the back with their slippers on, essentially. And they were picking out scraps because they couldn't break the press. So they were playing a long ball, which gave them time to come and play it. So I think there's a myth that actually the way to improve your defensive record is to buy defenders. Mm. Actually, sometimes you need that defensive midfield player or that, you know, if you take a Rodri out of Man City or if you take a party out of Arsenal, you know, is actually that as, as much of a problem as taking out a, a Saliba or a, you know, and, and you look at Man City, they haven't had a, a stable back four all season. Every week they're playing a different back four. But the one constant is the holding midfield player, right? Yeah, and, and when you look at Liverpool's midfield and we've highlighted it as their weakness, it's like they don't have those legs in it. And a few years ago, those legs were Jordan Henderson. He looks like he's, he's ageing a bit and he's probably one of the most underrated midfielders in there. But he had that job of, of providing the legs in there. They've had their injuries as well, but they don't have that person, like you mentioned in there, which was Fabinho. He's not been playing regularly. They don't have that person there to sit there and provide that solidity in the middle of the park. Yeah, I think it's going to be uh, actually a, 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 arguably possibly a long back half to the season for Liverpool as well because you know we'll, we'll come on to it, but they've got Wolves this week. And Wolves are very much on an upward direction. You know, Wolves are very much looking like a different outfit now. They look like they've got a purpose. They've got some young, hungry players. They've, they've made some good additions to their squads. They're definitely looking like they're going to be uh, moving in the right direction. So I could I could see, you know, last year, Wolves away, Liverpool win that game somehow, don't they? Like whether it's 2-1 or 3-2, like Liverpool are winning that game. But this, this you know, this weekend, I could actually see Wolves you know, Wolves beating Liverpool, which would then mean that Wolves are only nine points away from Liverpool. Yeah, and we've already had the dress rehearsal, haven't we, with the FA Cup game? Yeah. There was VAR controversies, well, which, yeah, I mean, yeah. Wolves have improved their squad even more and Liverpool haven't. So, yeah, I agree. Wolves can definitely go and, and beat Liverpool. And so the way that Liverpool have been playing, they don't look like beating anyone. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree that Liverpool need to need to find a dip, maybe a different way of playing even maybe try a different system for a little while just just something that gets their 
their attackers back in the game because they're you know they've not been that same attacking threat that they, they once even at the start of the season when they, they beat Bournemouth nine you know that that feels like a lifetime ago now yeah and it's, it seems strange that his, his phrase was always mentality monsters wasn't it that he's yeah. playing which at the minute it's a complete negative mentality like they don't seem to be the same sort of side as that that mentality like you mentioned running through teams pressing them they don't have that at the minute so yeah something's got to change with them but that's that, that. I mean, that's maybe for a different business pocket. But but mentality is it's really easy to have a good mentality when you're winning. You know, actually, you need mentality monsters when you're losing. Ironically, you know, that's when you need those leaders to step up and drag you to wins. You know, whether it comes off your centre forward's backside or whether it's an own goal or direct from a you know, a dodgy penalty or whatever it is. You know, you just need to start picking up some wins to turn that tide. Because, like you say, you know, we're sat in now going. Liverpool haven't won a Premier League game in the last three outings, you know, losing two, drawing. So they've got one point in the last nine. That is not Liverpool ever. You know, certainly not. Well, I can't remember the last time Liverpool went through what feels like a slump like this. And actually, they've just got to find a way of turning it around. If they did beat Wolves on, on Saturday, however, obviously that could be the start of a nice little run for them where they get themselves back in the mix. Because at the moment, if I was to ask you who you think at the end of the season, you know, is going to be in the top four, we haven't had this conversation, but I bet Liverpool aren't in there. No, Liverpool wouldn't be in there at all, no. And I reckon I could probably pick six teams ahead of them who would have a better chance of getting in the top four. Well, you definitely could. And, and you'd have to say, you know, and I've done a little bit of research for a couple of reasons on, on sort of Chelsea's fixtures. And Chelsea have got a very nice run coming up. You know, I, I really think that with the players they've signed and with what the run they've got, I, I could see Chelsea making a real... You know, Graham Potter's got the tools now. If they get some of them players back, Reese James, Chilwell, Sterling, you know, they didn't even shift some of the players they wanted to shift yesterday. So, so I mean, he has got an absolute embarrassment of riches. You know, that, that, that subs bench could be worth three, four, five hundred million pounds. And, and, you know, I really see them going on a bit of a tear up. I agree. And I think that's the main reason why we highlighted Liverpool over Chelsea is more, I guess they use the word failures, but Chelsea have had such a horrendous injury list like it became a bit of a running joke sometimes but yeah some of the players you mentioned we've got Wes Fofana there which pretty sure if he'd have been playing that they wouldn't have conceded the goals him and at the back would have been a solid pairing um but yeah like I said he's got an embarrassment of riches there now he's got all those transfers coming in in January to add to what he's got he's got a lot of the injuries coming back and like you said the fixture list he's got it wouldn't surprise me to see Chelsea challenging the top four at the end so they put a little bit of a run together I think he'll be there or thereabouts yeah, I think I think the only difficulty for anybody beneath there, and I include Tottenham in that, who are only three points off the top four, is that at the moment that that top four look they look set, they look consistent, they look they look well drilled, they look hungry. You know, I, I can't see I can't see anybody actually breaking into the top four that's not already in the top four. But again, uh, I guess that's why we keep turning up and paying our money to watch, right? Because you never know. But I'd be very very surprised if the top four doesn't finish as it is now. Yeah, I think the, the one team I'd highlight in there is Newcastle. You know, they're not used to doing this. So they, they have to obviously get over the line. They've made some some good signings. But, I mean, I personally don't think Anthony Gordon's that, that good of a signing. I don't think he adds that much to what they've currently got. The one thing, don't concede goals, which Anthony Gordon isn't really going to affect that. So if they can keep being as solid as they are, they're going to be very, very tough to beat. But I think they're probably the ones which could potentially drop out. See, I, I, I personally, I really like Andy Gordon. I actually do. I think he's, I think he's actually uh, a, a very much an underrated player who was doing bits that that, that wasn't rewarded in a, in a poor Everton team. If that makes sense. I think he made 
a lot of runs, a lot of great, great sort of getting into space, a lot of breaks that wasn't then sort of finished off by, he's almost been let down for me. His numbers have been let down by the people that he was playing with. I, I actually think that, I'm not saying that Newcastle is the right team for him necessarily, and time will tell. Uh, but I actually think Anthony Gordon's going to become a very, very good Premier League player given, given enough opportunities. I think that's what they've bought for me, is they've bought potential rather than the here and now. I think he could be a very good player. You know, he's got he's got a lot of energy. He's got pace. He's direct. From what I've seen, and it could, it, like I said, it could link to the team that he's been playing in with Everton, not having a, a real centre forward when Calvert Lewin's out. But I just haven't seen enough of him sort of tearing up his fullbacks. You know, going by them with ease. As I said he he seems to run around a lot at the minute. But like I said, it probably links back to the team that he's playing in. So yeah, I think yeah. Got good potential there. Though it's not a bad signing at all. I just think for him now comes back to who was available. He probably was the best person available for that money. Yeah, look, and, and Newcastle, you know, you mentioned, you touched on a defensive record, 11 goals conceded so far this season, which is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, you know, by far and away, the best defensive record, you know, five goals less than Arsenal, nine goals less than Man City. But they've only scored, I say only, but they've only scored 33 goals. And, you know, for a team that are in third looking looking to challenge, you know, they need to start unlocking defences and scoring a few more goals because at some point teams will you know, they have to start scoring against them. They're not going to go through the whole season. You know, if, if you double that, they're not going to finish the season only conceding 19 goals, 20 goals. They, they, someone's going to score against them, right? Yeah, and I think you mentioned about goals scored as well there. Something to highlight is Alexander Isak has been injured for a large period of time. Yep. Him coming back and providing that competition up front is going to be, I think, crucial. I mean, I thought it was a good signing when they made it, but now when you look at the team to have is the good players um, in the window as well, they're, they're they're up there for a reason. They're very good. Look again. I think there's a few things to touch on today. One of them is that what a job Eddie Howe has done. You know, for me, I was very skeptical when when he went in there. I thought that was a. I thought there was definitely got to be someone better that you could have picked based on him being out of the game for a period of time. Uh, you know, he hadn't exactly torn up many trees. You know, when he came away from Bournemouth, when he went to Burnley, you know, he very much like a hometown kid. But man, what a job he's doing up there right now. I think it ties back into this mentality monster that we were talking about, Klopp. I think he's got the mentality right. He's, he's bought into the club and the city. Um, he's brought them on the journey with him. The fans have always backed them there. But now the mentality that he's building the players, he's made them winners. Which, like I said, once you've got that mentality, it's quite hard to shift. So I think he's done a fantastic job there. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. And, and there's, there's two other, whilst we're talking about managers, arguably three others, but obviously... Thomas Frank down at Brentford has been doing an amazing job for a good for a while. But Marco Silva at Fulham and obviously Deserby at Brighton. I mean, those two are doing some unbelievable bits with with teams that are almost using that old Liverpool hype energy, high press, you know, defend from the front, you know, break teams down, football that, that I, I really love watching those three teams play football right now. In fact, they're they're probably my three favourite teams in the Premier League to watch. I mean, Arsenal, actually, to be fair, are are my favourite teams to watch right now because they are obviously tearing it up. But, you know, for those teams that you wouldn't expect, you know, normally in the past, Fulham versus Brighton, if that was on on a Sunday, that wouldn't get me excited. But now I would absolutely stop everything and sit down and watch that with 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 real tactical kind of interest. I think, yeah, I mean, two of the three sides are, we'll come back to Fulham, but Brentford and Brighton, in my opinion, are the two best run clubs. In oh. the um, Brighton, obviously, have been getting a lot of credit recently scouting system but they're very very similar model to Brentford I think they use the money ball system where it's all based on stats but you can see the players coming through 
they're not household names they're buying them at relatively low prices and then looking to sell them at high high prices um the way that they play as well i really like the way brighton play with this you know break keeping the ball and waiting for the opportunity to pass through the lines um yeah, I, th- I think they're fantastically run clubs. And from a manager perspective, they always seem to go for up-and-coming progressive managers. They don't go down this route of what's tried and tested, like a Sam Allardyce, something like that. I, I like their appointments and like the way that they forward think. Yeah, they, they, they absolutely have a pattern, don't they? They have, they, have a, they have a plan and it doesn't really matter who is at the top of that plan. You know, whoever comes in, buys into it immediately, understands it immediately, can, can add their little flavour to it. And, you know, you would have thought... Not only with with Brighton's manager leaving like he did in the summer, but the amount of players that they've lost, you know, Basuma, Correa, to name but two, Malpe obviously previously, like they've lost a lot of what was the mainstay. Obviously, more recently, Trossard's gone, yet they just keep finding. I mean, Matuna's come out of nowhere and is now, you know, arguably one of the most exciting players in the Premier League currently. Yeah, and like you said, it's all down to do that. Blue, they know exactly what what they do, what they are. They know they're not going to go and fetch a fifty million pound winger from the club. They need to buy cheap and develop that player, and that's what they did with Matoma. I think he was bought a couple of years ago. Um, he's been out on loan so he can get a work permit, but he's he was bought on the numbers that he was providing originally, and he's come straight inside and he's a direct replacement, if not even better than Trossard. And I think that's what a lot of clubs should be looking at of, of how Brighton and Brent Brentford do the same: is is picking up players, selling them on, but then buying a replacement based on what fits their club rather than reputation. Yeah, they, they, they buy on XG, right? They, they buy on uh, potential. They, they buy on... I mean, the Matuma story is fascinating. Obviously, he went and done a PhD on dribbling uh, and then basically used that information to, to, to teach himself to be a world-class dribbler. And, and interestingly, he said the only difference really between an elite dribbler and an average dribbler was not looking at the ball as much when you're dribbling. So, so ultimately, he put cameras on... I don't know how many people it was but but lots of people whilst they were dribbling and the difference was those that were at the top end didn't have their eye on the ball they were looking at where they were going and looking at the bigger picture mm. and he's now brought that back into his game and he's now absolutely uh, genuinely one of the most exciting football players in arguably in the world right now I think that information just just for me I've never heard that's the first time I've heard you say that I think that's really amazing information if you're an amateur footballer to listen to that said going away and then trying to practice not looking at the ball if that can make you a better player that's what feedback that is well I've, I've taken that into my coaching with my with my boys team you know we now do some really basic stuff to start. and it's amazing how how much they struggle with it they're quite a good age group you know they're quite good in their age group but actually the minute you say right don't look at the ball they're all over the place they're chasing it like it's like they're chasing a dog on the park like they're all over the place well i've got uh, football training tonight so i'll have a go at it and i'll get on <laughs> yeah, like, but genuinely, like you know, the information is all out there. It, it's, it's a really good uh, piece of information for, for even if you're just a, a couch football fan to try get an understanding of, of of his story. But yeah, he did a PhD in dribbling. Who knew? Like, if I'd have known that, maybe I would have gone to university, Frank. <laughs> I don't know if they'd have accepted you, to be honest. Well, they probably well they might have accepted me and then kicked me out. But uh, <laughs> they definitely weren't going to accept me on my grades. Uh, okay, so so we, we've had. Uh, a, a, a great deep dive into and getting ourselves back familiar with the Premier League. So uh, that, that was fantastic. But obviously, uh, our first ever episode is on February the 1st, 2023. Yesterday was uh, the close of the January transfer window. And, you know, without wanting to sound like uh, some companies that, that big it up into being something and then it ends up being a bit of a wet weekend. Actually, this one was, for many, many different reasons, this one was actually a really interesting transfer window, wasn't it? 
Yeah, and so we, we picked out a few clubs to sort of go through either the, the amount of transfers, the specific players or the lack of transfers and then we can sort of deep dive into the club and what we think of that window. But um, I think this was the highest spending January transfer window in history, I think, um, which Chelsea probably contributed 99% of that. But again, you can see where they're going with it. So, I mean, yeah, let's start with Chelsea. So You have to, don't you? You have to. Yeah. Where, else, where else can you start? Yeah, and like you said, we, we, you know, we've had we've touched on them a little bit, but you can sort of see what they're doing. But when you do look, when you just have read the names off the page, it does look a bit scattergun, like you mentioned. So, I mean, I mean, you've mentioned him, so I'll ask you the question: What do you think of Mudrich? I thought it was one of the most electrifying twenty minutes from a sub, having had that price tag, that pressure, big game away from home. I think I've ever seen. I was, I was very excited by. His intro. If I'm honest with you, I haven't watched that much of him historically, and I'd be lying if I said I've watched a huge amount of where he was from. But yeah, I, I, I'm all in on him. Actually, I think he's going to be an absolute player and an absolute fantastic signing for Chelsea for years to come. I agree entirely. I said I, I thought the game was pretty boring, but when mm. he came on, I sat up and watched and took notice. He glided by people like they weren't there. And I think if you're a Chelsea fan, he's got to excite you. He's the first person since Hazard that offers you that excitement, the reason that you pay money to go and watch a game. I thought he looked immense. The, the, the only slight criticism, and again, I'm, I'm being you know couch football fan, You know, I, I thought the chance that came across that he tried to take, I thought he should have just sort of buried it really. I thought he should have taken it first time. But, you know, Honestly, you can see the you can see the fear in the Liverpool defenders' eyes, couldn't you? They were literally every time the ball went to them, they were petrified. I tell you, I feel sorry for Trent Alexander-Arnold. I think it's the past three games he's come up against Matoma twice and Mudrich, which I don't think you can come up against too many more terrifying wingers than that at the minute. But yeah, I mean, I agree. Like he probably should have scored, but I think just looking at what he did in that cameo, if he doesn't start the next game, I'd be gobsmacked. And if he doesn't start putting up numbers again, I'd be I'd be gobsmacked. He, he Really excited me, and I just can't see how he doesn't start destroying some Premier League fullbacks. Well, yeah, and, and and you know, shapes and systems are going to be interesting to see what 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 Graham Potter does because obviously at Brighton he was more of a four two three one four three three, where Chelsea have been a bit more of a three three four three three four two one, and actually thinking about having him sort of off that left hand side with the Ben Chilwell sort of overlapping. Uh, you know that that could become a defender's nightmare, couldn't it? I mean, and down the right hand side, obviously, when when they get Reece James back, you know, you, you have to think about yeah. You know, and obviously, Jao Felix is a player that almost because of the crazy numbers they've been putting out there, we almost forget that they just signed Jao Felix on loan for the rest of the season. And I thought until he's sending off against Fulham, I thought he was by far the best player on the pitch. If they if they can find a goal scorer, they are going to be a proper handful. I think, yeah, he has gone completely under the radar, probably because he has been having to sit out a few games now as well. Yeah. Oh, but yeah, I thought he was the best player on the pitch by a mile on that game. Um, but as I say, you were just talking about systems. I don't think anyone can predict what system he's going to play because the systems he was playing was because of the players he had at his disposal. Whereas now, like we mentioned, embarrassment of riches. I mean, he's signed, what, one, two, three, four, is it seven or eight in the January window? Which could all fit, like you say, a three-five-two, a back four, you know, front three, a front two. They could just play any system. So it's going to be interesting watching them over the next couple of weeks and where these players fit in, how, you know, what type of football they play, whether they do sit back and counter or whether they're going to keep the ball. Um, 
it's going to be really interesting watching them over the next few weeks. And obviously, lots of uh, lots of people are sort of kicking off about FFP and Chelsea. And uh, where, where, where do you sit on on the FFP conversation? Because obviously, for those of you that don't know, you know what they've done is is kind of use a little bit of an an accounting loophole by giving players long contracts means that you take very simple maths, a hundred million pound player in Fernandez. Uh, if you give him a 10 year contract, I know they haven't done that, but I'm using an example, essentially 10 million pound goes on each year. Whereas if you gave him a five year contract, 20 million pound will go on each year. So you're basically stretching the length of the contract to stretch the length of the FFP. Is it just that they've played the game well? Obviously, UEFA are looking to change the rules moving forward to maximum five years. But you know, where do you see, have they have they cheated or are you comfortable with what they've done? I'm I'm pretty comfortable with what they've done. I mean, I've got a couple of opinions. I don't like. It seems that Premier League are destroying the rest of European football. The amounts that we're spending compared to like Syria, as an example, it's just it is a bit sad when you look at it. It it, it does seem that the Premier League is going to dominate for the next ten, twenty years. Just finances in other leagues just are not up to the same standard. So I think it, from that perspective, I think it's a bit sad. It's great that we get to see all this talent coming into the Premier League, but. From a European perspective, I don't think it's it's particularly healthy for the game. But but in general, I've got no problem with what Chelsea have done. I don't actually like FFP to be honest, because it doesn't. It's not actually controlling. The bigger clubs are still getting richer and spending more, and the smaller clubs are not able to spend as much. So I don't think it's actually um, solving any issues in that perspective. It's probably just it's obviously just stopping other clubs from spending um, past their means to ensure they don't go under, which is obviously great. But from an actual spending point of view, I don't think it's doing a lot. I'd, I'd be more in favour of scrapping it, to be honest, and just letting if clubs want to go and spend that money, let them do it. Well, yeah, there's definitely some loopholes, as we know, in terms of how you can get your parent company to to, to overinflate, etc. The more interesting one for me long term is obviously as we move forward, they're moving it to also your wage bill is not allowed to be above a certain percentage of your of your income. And obviously that's then going to decrease to 70%. And, and some of the stats out there, I mean, obviously not in the Premier League, but PSG, I think off the top of my head, I remember seeing it's about 109%. Their wage bill is 109% of their income. So, therefore, before you even start, you're you're making a huge loss just on player wages. That's uh, the same stat. And I think in third third position was Fulham and in fourth was Leicester. Yes. And so, you know, obviously, their teams that are, are, are trying to pay wages to, to, to stay up, right? They're, they're, they're trying to do it a different way. But I think, like I say, for me, you know, Chelsea, they've always been big spenders, let's be honest. I mean, since Abramovich took over, they've always been one of the world's you know biggest spenders. And, and you know, I think what they've done over the last two windows is is give the manager all of the tools. Most of them are young enough as well to to be around for a while. I think actually Chelsea could now, you'll find that, that they'll, they'll only be adding bits and pieces for the next three or four windows. They're not going to need to do this again. Uh, unless, of course, they go on to the next thing that we're going to talk about and, and they take a, a bit of a leaf out of Knott's Forest. Yeah, do you know what? I actually, I actually think the next window, Chelsea will do the same. They'll go out and probably spend five or six you know, on five or six players, I think they will do that. And the way that they'll do that, and it's like you mentioned, this accounting loophole. Um, if they sell Conor Gallagher, where he was what being uh, touted around at forty-five million, yep. From a financial fair play perspective, that would put them into a positive. This this financial fair play. Um, so, I mean, they have found that loophole. So I can't see how they don't go and spend again. Let's say whether that be a, a, like you mentioned a forward, have they gone spend 80, 90 million on a forward? But by selling a couple of their players and getting a few of them off the books where the contracts are expiring, I think Aspilicueta's contract might be expiring. Yep. It'd be on a big wage. I can't see how they don't go again. Say so they're going to have Xiao Felix 
on loan if they don't make that permanent. There's going to be a couple of spaces in that squad, and if they can sell a few of their other players for you know quite a, a big, going to mean that they can go again with that wriggle room with FFP. I, I was watching uh, Napoli play at the weekend. Uh, there is a there is a reason why I mention that now because I, I thought if I was the Chelsea owner now, for me, yeah, the, the missing piece, the the piece de la resistance, the Champions League winning signing, the Premier League winning signing is exactly that. Get get Oshman in and just clap. Yeah, I mean that. I mean he scored a, a, another fantastic goal at the weekend. But I just thought, you know, I can't think of another forward. You know, Harry Kane probably that Spurs probably you know historically haven't sold to Chelsea. They're probably, you're probably not going to get him out of, out of there. You know, you're not going to get Benzema to leave Chelsea, uh, Real Madrid. You know, Lewandowski's not leaving Barcelona. But who else would you be getting? With their model, though, I don't think they would be going for those players. They do think find the younger players, don't they? Really, so. You probably wouldn't. They probably wouldn't be targeting those players. But yeah, I mean, out of all the European leagues, he looks the one. He looks the hottest property around, doesn't he? For that sort of profile we're talking about for Chelsea, where they're young enough to be able to buy them and possibly have some sell-on value. Yeah, he looks the, the one that I would be targeting if I was the Chelsea owner. Yeah, I'd like to say truly that if they do that, if they can pull that off, and we won't be cheap. I think they have to break the British transfer record again to go again. But again, it seems like something that they're comfortable and confident enough to do. Uh, that you could really see Chelsea be at the top for, you know, certainly be challenging Man City, Arsenal for for for, for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. Let's um, let me let me ask you the question about an, another team then in the window, Notts Forest. So we've mentioned the word scattergun a few times. You could actually throw that phrase at Forest for what they've done at the beginning of the season and in the January window. There's a few caveats to that, isn't there? Is that a lot of their players at promotion when they got promoted? were on loan or out of contract. So they've had to go and buy those players. But the media seem to be chucking this scattergun phrase around, saying, oh, they're just buying anyone as and when they want. But there is actually a bit of logic behind it. So what, what do you think of their window? So I have a, a very small inside window into Knott's Forest uh, and through a friend of a friend who, who works there. And, and they told me very, very early on that they wanted uh, three Premier League players or three Premier League quality players for every position. And that was something that they were set about doing uh, the minute they got promoted. Now, it's not for me to say whether I think that all of the players they've signed are Premier League quality or not. And some of those that last, last time they were in the Premier League, uh, arguably, because they weren't Premier League quality in terms of Serge Aurier, someone that uh, obviously almost got laughed out of the Premier League and he's come back into Notts Forest and is doing a, a phenomenal job. Uh, and the Knotts Forest fans have fallen in love with him. So I think that they've made some really good signings. I think the key thing to this is actually the job that Steve Cooper's doing in he, what he's managed to do with all of those players coming in. It's taking a bit of time, but he's now got the same level of team buy-in from the new players as he had last year. And you can now see that showing in their results. Yeah, I, I agree. I think he's doing a superb job. It, it must have been one of the hardest jobs in football to be given 20-odd players who have never met each other before and then to turn them into physical, you know, a, a team. So, I think he's doing a great job. And you can see with some of the signings that he's made as well, you mentioned Premier League players. Um, he has some of them, like you mentioned, aren't actually what you'd class as Premier League star quality. But as a squad, they've got a lot of Premier League players in that in that team now. And he said, and in the squad, they can... They can move around. I think one signing for them which is going to be really important is Chris Wood. Um, he is Premier League proven. He's not obviously a star striker, but he will score you goals. You know, Newcastle, there's a reason Newcastle went for him. 
There's a reason he's been at all these other clubs. He's a Premier League quality striker. I think he's a really good signing for them. He'll complement some of the other players that they've got, like Morgan Gibbs-White. Um, and he'll give them an outlet up there of holding the ball. And they seem to have a style at the minute where they're trying to stop uh, stop other teams scoring goals and nicking 1-0, 2 wins. Um, I think he'll be really true to that style of play and I think he's a great signing. Yeah, and, and you mentioned Morgan Gibbwhite. I think I wasn't I wasn't sure he was Premier League quality. You know, obviously saw him playing Sheffield United and I thought he looks like a good championship player. Uh, obviously, there's some good bits and pieces down there. But I tell you what, he has he's really started to impress me. He's becoming, he's, he's almost growing into the league uh, week by week. And actually, he's becoming a real key player for them. And actually, everyone was talking about sort of Johnson, Brendan Johnson being this, this absolute sort of live wire. But actually, I think for them now... Uh, Gibbs White is, is the main man. He's the one that all their their attacking play seems to go through, and he's really pulling strings for them now. Yeah, he looks a real quality player. He's one that England should be keeping an eye on as well. Um, it looks like he's coming on leaps and bounds. I'm not quite sure. What's, do you know what his injury state is? He got injured. Man, you in the cup, didn't he? So I don't know if he's out for a few weeks or not. But from their perspective, if he's if he is out, he's going to be a huge loss. So I mean, let's say I'm not quite sure on his injury state. So fingers crossed that he's not. Yeah, I mean, that would be a big blow for them, especially as they've started to really turn the corner. And like I say, I think, I think not as far as, you know, when you were speaking earlier around uh, sort of teams that you feel might go down, uh, not as far as probably weren't in the equation. And you wouldn't have said that, you know, sort of three weeks ago, four weeks ago even. You know, it feels like it's been uh, a very, very quick turnaround. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, we haven't got a date of when Gibbs White will be back, but it does look like he's going to be out for a couple of weeks and hopefully they can find, you know, maybe a Jesse Lingard needs to step up, you know, to, again, another player with loads of Premier League experience. Maybe he could fill that gap for them because, like you say, you know, they have got a lot of players. Yeah, so, and you mentioned that you know somebody at Forest. I play football five-a-side with a lad who works at Forest and he, the feeling that he's been giving me about uh, what the... The staff at Forest think of Danilo. They think he's quality. They yeah. think he's a real top player. So yeah, he's another one who'll have to step up. But they've just signed John Joe Shelby as well. So you know he's not a number ten as sorts, but he's a midfielder. So they've got those options now. I think what one of the signings to highlight, Rich, which is going to be interesting for when Dean Henderson comes back, is Navas, Kayla Navas. Yeah, yeah. What's going to happen there? So you're going to have two top quality goalkeepers. I think he's only injured for two weeks, and they've gone and signed Navas. So that's that's a bit of a strange one for me because. Um, yeah, both of them are going to expect to be number one, so they're going to be upsetting somebody. I don't think not as far as the right about that, mate, based on how many players they've signed. I think I think they're just going to play. You know, if Navas comes in and has two world class games and you know keeps clean sheets and is making saves, you know, obviously they've got got Leeds this weekend, which again, you know, right down the bottom there, you'd have to say that's winnable. You know, Good game. Obviously, Leeds have made some great acquisitions as well. But, you know, Notts Forest, you, you could argue, would be favourites for that game. You know, Navas keeps a clean sheet. How do you get him out of the team? You know, how, how, how do you replace him? So, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what Steve... But he seems to have done a really good job of getting all of these players, as we said, sort of bought into the Notts Forest history, not bought into the Notts Forest family. And they've got that connection with the fans that, at the moment, it feels like maybe only Arsenal could better. You know, what Arsenal have done with that connection with their fans. Well, maybe Newcastle as well. Newcastle, yeah. You know, obviously last night getting through the, the Carabao Cup final. I think they call it the Carling Cup final. I'll show you how old I am. Uh, <laughs> the, the Carabao, the Milk Cup final. <laughs> there you go. There's a reference to the teenagers. Uh, you know, actually, they're, they're probably the three teams that have got that that connection uh, that, that's really buzzing at the moment. So, uh, yeah, not as far as they've uh, absolutely smashed the last two transfer windows. And let's let's hope for their sake, 
and their fans' sake who have been long-suffering that they stay up. So we now come on to a nice segue into this weekend's fixtures. And we've both picked out uh, a fixture that, that we feel is, is one of the two key fixtures this weekend. So, Fran, uh, you can fire over the big game on Sunday afternoon, the 4.30 kickoff, prime time, Sky Sports. It's the Spurs versus Man City rematch from what, what feels like only sort of 10 days ago. Yeah, so I've I picked this game out just because, I mean, it's an obvious one that stands out. You've got two good sides um, who are both near the top of the table. We've seen the game the other week where Spurs went 2-0 up at half-time and Man City came back with a great second-half performance. Um, Spurs seem to be a bit of a bogey side for Man City. So, the main reason why I've selected this game is because if Spurs can do a number on Man City, Arsenal going to Everton, which we'll obviously come on to, um, if they pick up three points and Man City get beat, it's league, league over for me. I think Arsenal have already got a, a great chance of winning it, but Man City have to go on a run now. And with Spurs being a bogey side, they have to go and beat them. So, I think this is a real crucial game. Interesting, you go in, go in early on Arsenal, even though they haven't played Man City once yet. So you could argue there's a six-point swing. I think, I think, yeah, look, I, I, I completely get the idea that Spurs are Man City's bogey team. I, I do get that. I think obviously that goes back to the Champions League classic from a few years ago. Now that it's probably longer ago than I care to remember, even though it feels like three years ago. I think the interesting thing that's sort of broken today is obviously Antonio Conte is uh, not going to be in that game. He's obviously gone under. You know, quite a, quite a massive operation. Uh, he's going to be out for a while. Obviously, uh, he brings a lot of the energy to that team from where he appears to anyway from the sideline. He's, he's certainly very uh, animated, shall we say. He definitely seems to be the driving force. I'd, I'd be interested to see what you think of what the impact of the manager not being in that game might have on it. I think if you were talking just about a manager in general, there's clearly going to be an impact. But I think he's one of the managers where he, him being present is a massive thing. Like you said, he drives his players on on the touchline. Sometimes he can step over the mark, as does you know, Arteta recently as well. But he's the sort of manager where him being present and him shouting at his players, you know, the referee, that sort of thing, can actually influence the game. Whereas if you've got some of the other managers, stand, not saying they just stand around there, but in general, standing on the sidelines, they're not as much as a physical presence. So I think that he'll be a massive blow. Yeah, absolutely. I think Spurs, you know, if I was a Man City fan, uh, I'd, I'd be very comfortable that we go down to Spurs and, and win that maybe, you know, a couple of, couple of clear goals. And I think if I was a Spurs fan, I think I'd be worried that, you know, that could drift us even further out of the mix. And, you know, you'd expect Man United to beat Palace. You'd probably expect Newcastle to beat West Ham. And all of a sudden, that three-point gap becomes six points. You're looking over your shoulder. Brighton beat Bournemouth and, and they're, they're right on your toe. So, yeah, I, I think the one thing to probably highlight on that, though, is if you, if you sort of flip that from a Spurs perspective, Son scored a couple of goals in the FA Cup. He looked like he was coming back to form. He has not been the same player this year at all. So if he is coming back to form, he'll be. It's effectively a new player. Um, they've also signed Pedro Porro, which I think is where their weakness has been at right back, with they've had Emerson Royal or Doherty at right back. Him coming in, he looks unbelievable. And for 40 million, actually, I think it's a bit of a snip. So adding him and obviously an informed son into that, that's that's going to give them an uplift. And like I said, being a bogey side, they seem to sort of have the men and City play hitting them on the counter and they've got the players to implement that game. I'd I'd be slightly worried as if I was Man City because so if they don't take three points here, it could be title over. 
rightly so highlighted as one of the two key games of the weekend when you actually break it down right. It's a massive game and whoever wins, uh, and it's one of the games that a draw doesn't help either team, if we're honest. So, so it should be uh, end-to-end attacking football. You're right, Porro uh, looks, looks like an absolutely phenomenal addition to the Spurs team. I think, you know, Emerson, Royal and Doherty have been... You know, again, looking at everything you read and see in the press, whether you're whether you can believe it all have definitely been substandard. And, and Poro looks the real deal. He looks like arguably the best player that was available in that position in the market. Uh, and he should, in theory, create chances for Kane. He should free up some space for Kulisevsky down that right hand side. You know, some of the crosses he looks like he put in for Sporting over the years. Look, you know, if I was a centre forward, I'd be dribbling at the, the chance of getting on the end of them. But the one thing that we didn't touch on in the transfer window, and, and, and or when we're talking about transfer window, and arguably one of the biggest surprises for me because it came out of absolute nowhere was Man City letting Cancelo go. Yeah, I think I think when you take it as a, just a general scale, it is a bit surprising. But when you actually look at sort of the stats of how many games he's played recently, he's not really featured. So there's clearly been a, a falling out between him and Pep. Now, I said you take it from an actual player's perspective of you know what he's capable of and the type of player he is. It's a big loss for them, but he's not been playing him. So is it actually that much of a loss? He's been playing. Is it Rico Lewis? Yeah. Saying he's been playing Rico yeah. Lewis. He looks a really good player. Um, you know, Kyle Walker's even not been playing because of that. So is it that much of a loss? I mean, it, it clearly is because of the the you know the level of Cancelo. He's been class for the past few years but he's not been playing so is it going to affect them that much? It's just about squad depth though isn't it? I mean I think you know arguably Cancelo was brought in to be a left back arguably you know and, and Aki's playing out there now as a left back you know I like the player but I don't think he's a left back uh, having said that the way that Man City have, have evolved is that actually quite subtly they're really playing with the back three and actually, Rico Lewis is coming into becoming a more of a CDM, a right-sided CDM to create space and pockets of John Stones. And again, I'm not sure he, he went off last game with a, with a hamstring, I seem to remember. But John Stones was playing as right centre-back. So actually, they're set up as a four, but actually it turns into a three every time they get the ball. And I think that I think that's why it's interesting of why they've let him go. Because if clearly, if they were wanting to play with the left-back, they'd have kept Cancelo. Uh, who, like you said, even if they had fell out for squad depth. So yeah. I don't I don't think it's that much of an issue for Man City because there is reasons behind why they've done it. They're not going to um, you know, cut the nose off to spite their face just because they'd have fallen out. That was they'd have been bringing in a new left back. So I, I don't think it's that much of an issue really. I can see why it's a big story of the type of player that he is, and I think that probably the main issue for me is is how much it strengthens Bayern. So if they're looking at it from a Champions League perspective, I don't know if he's qualified or not, but if he's not, he, they've strengthened one of their biggest rivals. That for me is a bigger story than any actually going. Yeah, it won't be cup tied because it resets. So any player you sign, so for example, going back to, to Porro, who played against Spurs in the Champions League for Sporting, he can now play four Spurs in the Champions League for the rest of the season if they obviously progress past AC Milan, who are falling off an absolute cliff. Uh, so you'd think that maybe at the moment Spurs might be favourites to do that. So Porro can play for Spurs, but I don't think you can play against your home club. So, so if they did come together, he would be able to play in that game, but not because he's cup side, but because he can't play against his home team. Okay, yeah. So I mean, that for me is a bigger story, to be honest. How they're strengthening one of their main major rivals for the the Champions League. Said he's not been playing in the Premier League, so it's, it's bit, to me, it's a bit of a non-story. Okay, there you go. That put me back in my box. So, uh, yeah. school... <laughs> shout out, Rich. What do you know? Uh, <laughs> score prediction. Wait, what, what, what are you going for? Then you, you big Spurs up all along here, calling the bogey team. Q. 
Fran picking a 1-3, Man City winning 3-1. What are you going for? So, you've literally nailed the score. I would go for Spurs 1, Man City 3. But I think Spurs will score first. Okay. So, uh, I, I think it will probably play out similar to how it did the previous game where Spurs take the lead and it forces Man City to put the tempo. Man City haven't looked good recently, I don't think, even though they've been getting a few yeah. Yeah. don't think they've actually looked that good. Yeah. Um, I think they almost do need that that kick up the arse to, to set their, their tempo a bit higher and start moving the ball quicker. Um, I think it also depends on the, the team that he picks. It, he tinkers too much for me, Pep. Now, I'm arguing against the great, great <laughs> Pep Guardiola here, but when you have somebody like Mares in the form that he is, then it'll, it'll drop him for a week. It just, just doesn't make sense to me, um, which I don't it helps to setting a tempo from from the word go, which you don't know what team's playing. But I mean, I hope he picks the same sort of side and they go out there because when they're on form, they're, they're an absolute joy to watch. They really are, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he, 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 he's redefined football, not just in the Premier League, but even in under tens, under eleven football across the country now. If you're a goalkeeper, you have to be able to play with your feet. You know, everybody is playing out from the back. Uh, if you dare try and break a line or pass through a line that the opposition coaches are shouting out, long ball team, everybody, you know, it, it, we've all become Pep Guardiola football snobs. Uh, and look, you know, his, his protege, his, his, you know, son from another mum in, in, in Mikel Arteta is, is adapting his system very well and taking Arsenal to, to what looks like potential Premier League glory off the back of his principles. Yeah, uh, I think what's actually quite interesting to note was where Spurs' uh, goals came from the other night. But it was from pressing yeah. high up the pitch and, create, and actually forcing the mistake. So even though that is the way they want to play and the way that everyone now, like you mentioned, across the world wants to play, by actually pressing high, I think Spurs almost have a little blueprint now of how to try and go and beat Man City. So I can see them actually learning from that and, and causing them some problems. I just think when you've got somebody like a Haaland up front, all he needs is half a chance. Oh, yeah, what a player. What a player. Uh, what a signing. And... Uh... For another podcast, but if he's not in your fantasy team by yet, my God, you must be. I think it's eighty nine percent of people have got him in there. He is an absolute machine, and he's going to not only beat the, the the record of Premier League goals in the season, but he's going to go so far past it. I don't think he'll ever get beaten. It's actually embarrassing, isn't it? Really, for a few of them, he's he's already beaten his son, the goal top goal scorer last year. Sam Son, yeah, yeah, he's already beat that. Yeah, even halfway through, so. Yeah, everyone else just may as well pack up and go home. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so game two, the game that I've picked is the. The next one to watch is uh, is Everton versus Arsenal. And you just said there that if Man City lose against Spurs, uh, that's it, title over. I'm not so sure that this is... I wouldn't want to be going to Everton this weekend if I was Arsenal. I think Sean Dyche, although Everton didn't make any signings in the transfer window, I think Sean Dyche was the best transfer they could have made. I think that he will make that team tough to beat. Solid. I think this is the worst time Arsenal could be going to them. But at the yeah. same time, if I was an Arsenal fan, I would not be fearing Everton. I agree with you, you know, Deitch coming in, give, give them a new attention. The fans will be really up for it. Um, say it's the worst time they could have played them. They could have played them at any point before that, that happened and they'd have been the same old Everton where they've been awful all year. But if, that, if Arsenal turn up there and they do what they do, they'll trample all over them. Absolutely, Arsenal shouldn't be fearing anybody right now because they are arguably with Napoli, you know, one of the two best teams in Europe right now to watch. You know, they are phenomenal, but there's just something about Everton going back to a grit and sawdust, you know, spit and sawdust type of a manager. And that's that's doing Sean Dyche, by the way, 
complete discredit because he's absolutely a, a football tactical uh, genius. And, and obviously, some of those players, you know, James Tarkov, James Tarkovsky, will know of his principles from their time together at Burnley. I think he's got the type of players. They obviously, they lost Anthony Gordon and didn't replace him. But I just think that actually he's going to get that Everton team organised, uh, balanced, yeah, uh, together. And I just think that the emotion, those Everton fans, you know, they've just gone through last season and they stayed up obviously in dramatic fashion. They've gone through a relegation battle. That they, they know how they can help. I just think this might... Be, I'm not saying that Everton are going to win, but I can see this being a draw. I can see Everton... It's, just... definitely, it's a turning point in Everton's season. Even if they get beat, it's the, it's the performance of, of how they, they get beat, if they do. Um, I think the major thing for them is... Did Sean Dyche's interview? Yeah. They put up on all their socials. He mentioned the word realigning the club. I think it was three or four times. And he mentioned about the players running through brick walls. And I think just for Everton of where they are at the minute, but what also the club means to a lot of the fans is it's it is about how you know how you perform on the pitch. Like, do you actually look like you're running through a brick wall for the manager and for the fans? Which I don't think they've done for a long period of time. Sean Dyche will bring that to them one hundred and twenty percent. So. I think it's a great appointment in that for that way. And even if they get beat by Arsenal, as long as they you can see the direction the club is going in, I think that will mean the world to the fans. Yeah, in many ways, this weekend is a free hit for him, right? They don't, oh, they're, not, they're, not, they're, yeah. they're not they're not expected to beat Arsenal. They're absolutely not. But I just think that you know it's at it's at Goodison. You know that that atmosphere, that energy that the fans will bring, the tight pitch, just you know they're yeah. right on top of them. If know. they give it a real go, it gives them real real hope for the remainder of the season that the club is going to probably give it a go to stay up and fight. And, and I just think that that will be uh, a fantastic game. I think you know it's the early kickoff on Saturday, which again historically has thrown up some uh, unusual uh, results, shall we say? And gives the those sort of underdogs uh, for some reason, you know, a, a bit of a benefit. And I just, I just think that I'm really going to be intrigued to see the shape that he puts out, the team that he puts out. You know, if he can get Calvert Lewin firing, if the Damari, uh, Damari Gray behind, maybe doing some bits and pieces. I think from set pieces, obviously they'll become that handful. I think you know, in, in Jordan Pickford, arguably one of the informed goalkeepers in the Premier League right now. Uh, I think they've got the, actually, they've got some core fundamentals there that, that actually should mean that they're a pretty decent team. Anana in midfield is a very good holding midfield player. Yeah, and like you mentioned, I think all of those players, their fundamentals will absolutely tie in with what Sean Dyke is looking to do. Yeah, no, I'm I, I'm actually, uh, you know, two weeks ago, I would not have spent any time looking at that. I would just turn back on, you know, watch, was, the, watch the highlights and seen Arsenal win 3-1 or 4-1, yeah. you know. That would have just been a way banker. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. But but I'm actually really intrigued to see how how Everton line up. Yeah, uh, I think something to highlight on that game as well, Rich. I think it's going to be really um, in, uh, interesting how Arsenal set up and perform. So I think is Thomas Partey injured? Allegedly, yes. I'm he, not is, sure. he is possibly their most important player in mm-hmm. that team. Taking him out of the team now. They've, yes, they've just signed Jorginho, but they are completely different players. Even though they play in the same position. Anyone who thinks that that's a like-for-like replacement, in my opinion, is completely wrong. They're going to be gobsmacked by the the levels difference. Partey, first of all, very good on the ball, but when you watch, passes are always forward. He gets the team set with the tempo. He sets that tempo. 
Um, Jorginho, on the other hand, will be good for them closing games out by keeping the ball, but he's not that player who's going to dictate the tempo and pass forwards. Um, so I, I think that's going to be really important and intriguing to see how they set up without party if he is injured. Um, said so and they've got a few other additions, haven't they? Arsenal, uh, I think they've made some good signings in the window. So people like your Trossards coming in. So when if Martinelli or Saka do get injured, they've got cover there. So I'll be interested to see how they go in the team that they put out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, you know right now it doesn't really matter who Arsenal put out on the pitch. To be honest with you, they know how to play. That there's a system that's, that's that seems to be very very successful. Like I said before, the connection between them and the fans is is arguably second to none. You know that, that there's a real buzz around Arsenal. That you know it must be great to be an Arsenal fan right now, thinking about all of those former glory days that may well just be back. You know, and if, if, if Arsenal can hold on in the Premier League against. You know what is still a, a mighty fine Man City team. Yeah. You know, they've even they've even managed to get Piers Morgan on board, haven't they? So they must be doing. Right. They must be delighted. What? Yeah. Anyway, let's not go down. Like this this is this, <laughs> this isn't a political podcast. Let's 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 move on. Uh, okay. So something else that we're going to be doing on a weekly basis is is kind of calling out some either a great piece of commentary or a great piece of punditry or or, or maybe not actually and. Uh, this week, unfortunately, we're going to start off with a negative, uh, and we're going to call we're going to call you out, Mr. Paul Merson, uh, who just yesterday uh, was on Sky Sports, uh, obviously kind of closing out the transfer window as they do with the big yellow deadline day yellow tick going on the screen, and without any kind of sense of sarcasm or or understanding, uh, he sat there. Fran, I don't know if you saw this, but he sat there and said that Manchester United have made a terrible decision in panic buying Sabitzer, who doesn't even get in the Bayern Munich team and therefore is an awful player, whilst told everybody that Arsenal had made a great signing in Jorginho, who hadn't been getting in the Chelsea team, uh, but had no sense that his bias just comes through and it just reeks of clouding his judgment. I don't know if you saw that, but I just thought that was a really, really poor piece of judgment because Sabitzer is, uh, he was arguably one of the most sort of sought after players when he left RB Leipzig, one of the one of the, you know international great free kick taker. You know, that Man United didn't know that Ericsson was going to get the injury when he did. It was a last minute, yes, it was a panic because Ericsson got injured, but I think that's a fantastic signing in the time they had to turn that around. I, I, I agree, and especially for the finances, so you're just paying wages and you've got an injured player you need to replace in Ericsson. What a great signing that is. So I said, I don't think like you would actually wish for a better loan signing to come in and help build that squad up. Um, then, like I said, you mentioned with Jorginho. Again, I think Jorginho is quite a, a good signing. But on the face of it, is he going to fit that squad? Now, you can't say that about Sabit, so I think he fits into that like a glove. We mentioned about bias, and that's what this podcast is about. And it disappoints me with Merson because he actually, if you look at some of the stuff that he's said previously about some transfers, he mentioned one about Harry Maguire going to Man U. And he gave you a real insight of why he thought it would fail about Man United. When he, you know, when he plays for Leicester, he was on the he was on the edge of his box and he defended, had everything out and ran out with the ball. When you come to Man United, you're on the halfway line. And I think when he's doing analysis like that, he's a really top pundit. But when your bias comes through, I think you completely ruin that that um, you know everything that you're about. It make any sense? And that's why we're not telling people who we support because we are going to be trying to be giving ourselves. Uh, the chance to keep it completely unbiased. So, Fran, uh, really enjoyed this first one. Thank you very much. Look forward to doing many, many more in the future with you, buddy.